The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report Finance, presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. So do you see that uh, Lucy Ellis is going to take over from Bill Evans as Chief Economist at Westpac? Yes. So yeah. she's the uh, Chief Economist, effectively, mm. at the RBA. Yeah. Although I suppose Governor Phil Lowe is the Chief Economist Yes. <laughs> the governor's always the chief economist, usually, or at least usually. But anyway, Lucy, the Ellis, moment, yeah. Lucy Ellis ran the economics department, now moving across to Westpac for a pay rise, fair enough. Yep. Um, First uh, female chief economist at any of the big four banks. Right. It's amazing that it's taken that long, isn't it? Surely. I know. <laughs> anyway. There's a lot of women in the economics departments yeah. of the big four banks. And some fantastic <laughs> economists, really interesting yeah. Uh, perspectives too. Yeah, that's right. But um, they always report, as you say, to men who have have done. Yeah. Although we should say Bill Evans has had a tr- tremendous innings and, you know, for a journalist, he's always someone who's helpful and thoughtful and uh, always good to talk to. He is always good to talk to and um, uh, always enjoy talking to him. And he's been around, as I say, he's been around for a long time. Um, how long do you think? How long has it been? Thirty-five years, I think he's been. Or is yeah. it, I think it's a, at least thirty years. He's been chief economist. It's a West long Bank. stint, isn't it? Long stint. Some big changes. Speaking of big changes, we've got the governor of the Reserve Bank being announced shortly. Yes, well, I know who it's not going to be. Lucy, Lucy Ellis. Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And do you think she sniffed the breeze, and or perhaps she didn't want the job? I don't know. But uh, look, I don't. If, if they were going to appoint internally, it'd be Michelle Bullock. I would say she's the deputy governor. Um, surely, I wouldn't, have thought so, yeah. I wouldn't have thought Lucy Ellis would leapfrog Michelle Bullock. Um, but you know, I suppose anything's possible. But clearly, she mm. was told. And I guess one of the one of the people on the short list, apparently Guy DeBell, also sniffed the breeze, or at least was told that he wasn't going to get the job. Yeah, and uh, left to join Andrew Forrest. Which I, mean, I don't think he would have done that if he if he'd really thought he was going to become governor. I think that's probably right. He subsequently scaled back his involvement with Andrew Forrest's um, business. So, yeah, so you he's, know, he's available. He's available. Uh, I think he's still there in advisory capacity or something like that. But um, um, I really don't know how this is going to turn out. I find it really interesting that all the talk about external overseas candidates just seems to have completely dried up. You know, we're now talking about a sort of pool of – insiders in quotation marks um, who are either in the RBA tent in one way or another um, on the board or actually working for the RBA or, you know, around the RBA tent with Jenny Wilkinson. So I got the feeling, and I don't know this for sure, but just reading I think probably a a piece in the Fin Review that Carolyn Wilkins, who was was on the RBA Mm. review panel and uh, used to be Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada, now on the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Board um, uh, was sounded out. Right. And uh, she seems to have said, no, no, I'm 
I live in Canada, thanks yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her family and husband are there. So because I'm early on, um, you tipped her. I, I tipped. Well, I said that she should get it, but yeah. I mean, uh, but yeah, I mean, she, it's clearly not going to be her. Yeah. Uh, it appears that the top candidate is Jenny Wilkinson of the Department of Finance. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Stephen Kennedy, Treasury, who would be – either of those would be a sort of repeat of Bernie Fraser who came from being Secretary of the Treasury right. across to yeah. um, Department of Finance. Um, and uh, Guy Bell and um, – And Michelle Bullock. And Michelle Bullock. Yep. And there was one other – oh, David Gruen, who is, um, used to be uh, Head of Economics at Treasury and is now CEO of the ABS. Yes. So he's mentioned. Mentioned in dispatches seems to be the outsider of the uh, race. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, yeah. I, what what I – yeah, I, I find it interesting, you know, putting aside the the sort of um, the, the sort of feeling you've got from Chalmers is, you know, we need to shake this institution up. Those front runners don't feel to me to be shaking the institution up, but maybe that's appropriate. Maybe we don't need to shake the institution up quite as much. Well, as no, I think that depends on whether you believe the RBO review uh, report or not, because the RBO review report mm. was scathing of the governance of the Reserve Bank. Yeah, right? so. it was. It was absolutely damning of it, and so the whole idea of a shake-up comes from that. Yeah, and. Um, either you believe it or you don't. Because if you do believe it, you need someone from outside. Well, surely Chalmers has to believe it. That's what I mean. You well, know, he yeah, commissioned the that, review. Except that, um, <laughs> except that Phil Lowe said it's all wrong. Yes, and he will and speak again today, Wednesday afternoon, about that. Whatever. Right. Well, yes, so he's going to see the topic of his speech. Yeah, well, okay. Well, he said, and we'll we'll say at length today <laughs> that it's wrong. And I presume that the board members who aren't speaking publicly but would have spoken privately to Jim Chalmers would have told him it's all wrong. So I reckon he's got a bit of a dilemma because he would have had the board and governor saying that the, the RBA review, the three people on the review, yeah. got it wrong. Yes. And he's got the review panel saying they're all, uh, it's a terrible uh, governance and uh, they need to fix it up. So Again, he commissioned the review. He, sure. he wanted to shake this up. They've been the government has been gently scapegoating low for since it came to power. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you can't have it both ways. No. So I just I just think I mean, oh, the, uh, there's been a sort of this reverse ferret where uh, suddenly there's a bit of a keep low, you know, extend his contract for a year and let him. Uh, I, I think the subtext is let him take the bullets for this. Uh, Tightening cycle that oh, still yeah. needs to continue. Um, so maybe they'll con- maybe what? Maybe they'll renew him for a year. I don't. I didn't get that. I think. I think um, Chalmers has been on Radio National this morning saying, you know, we're still thinking about the, you know, it's a difficult process and all that stuff. I, I, I think Chalmers is, he has to appoint someone else, doesn't he? He's gone through this process. Surely, I, I guess you you could go to an insider and say, you know, we feel. Do you, I mean, you, so, do you think these the shortlist of five that's been in the Fin Review, yeah, is well informed? Um, I, f- I think so. Yeah, because I mean, if Chalmers' staff, you know, his PR or whatever it is, has been telling whoever wrote, I can't even remember who wrote that in the Fin Review, yeah. uh, gave them that shortlist. Oh no, I don't think it's like that. No, because then. You know, because if it's just speculated, it could be someone who's not on that shortlist. It could be someone. That's right. But but if it was someone not on that shortlist, you would have thought we'd be hearing 
something around that. Not necessarily. Maybe not. Because it's a pretty leaky place. No, there. But, but I think, uh, you know, without sort of going on about this subject too much, um, I think you're right that that the people on the shortlist, Kennedy, Wilkinson, you know, um, Bullock, hmm. even Tabell, are not outsiders. No, they're not outsiders. So none of them are shake-up merchants. No. Right? Really? No. No, I agree. I agree. So, if, so maybe if Chalmers, there's someone left If Chalmers does want to shake it up... Um, then it's got to be someone who's not on that shortlist yeah. or else you might as well leave low there. I mean, really. Maybe, yeah. For 12 months, as you say, maybe for 12 months or two years just to sort of let him take the bullets and then, yeah. then bring someone in from outside. Oh, look, I don't know. We're, yeah. we're just speculating. We're guessing. We're guessing. But it's it's going to be very interesting. Apparently it's um, – I think they're going to the G20 low in Chalmers soon. And so it'll either be announced – the thought is it'll be announced either directly before that or shortly after it. So – we should know by the end of the next couple of weeks. Right. Um, just something we do know is that China's def- uh, inflation number came out during the week. It was zero. Zero, yeah. Um, Phil Lowe wouldn't mind that, would he? I mean, our, our inflation for May was zero, but it was only yes. month, month by month, right? Yes. Month from, from, <laughs> from April to May. This, yes. Their inflation rate of zero was actually year on year. Yeah. So um, that's kind of serious, right? It is kind of serious. I mean, you, you think of... Obviously, most central banks are worried about inflation expectations becoming unanchored and and everybody demanding more pay and because they expect to pay more for stuff. China's got the opposite problem. People won't spend because they think their goods are going to be cheaper next month. Yeah. And that is a worry. And people aren't investing because there's there's no real incentive to invest uh, from interest rates. Yeah, uh, because they're so low. All returns, yeah. everything's yeah. Uh, all returns are low. Everyone between between the the sort of difference difference between cash in the bank or investing is minimal. So yeah. people don't. So if people neither invest nor spend. Yes, um, you're in strife. Yeah. Now the economy's still rebounding. It's probably still going to grow around five percent this year. So you step back and you go, oh, well, that's not too bad, is it? But no, but the demand for iron ore it comes from the prop- <laughs> yes. from the real estate sector, right? Yes. Which is Absolutely tanking. Yeah, well, new new prop, new property sales in June were down 27%. They had been showing some signs of stabilising, recovering, and then, woof, it's smashed again. Yeah. They cannot get this sector going. Uh, and I, I, Well, they've got enough apartments already. They do, yeah, yeah. They so, do. You and, know, they, and they just keep the saying homes are for living, not speculating, which is a good, good point. Um, <laughs> but I just – they – they 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 have to stimulate, but they just seem completely unwilling to do it. I mean, they've been saying the same thing for six months, you know, oh, targeted measures will do this, and all they do is cut some interest rates, cut some property taxes and hope it works, but it's, it's clearly not. So maybe it's time for them to borrow and go big. Yes, well, and, and when uh, China sneezes, we catch a cold. We do, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that we haven't so far. I mean, it... Ironically, all the speculation about stimulus has kept the iron ore price pretty robust. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 up twenty five percent since the end of May, entirely on speculation that they'll eventually deliver some stimulus. And even as you get crappy steel export numbers and steel production numbers, the iron ore price stays firm. So we're we're hanging in there, but you'd think the penny drops at some stage. Now, the other thing, before we get on to questions, the other thing I want to tell you about is this uh, press conference that the robots held yes. in Geneva. Mm. Um, it was at an um, AI for Good summit, as it was called, 
run by United Nations agencies. Mm. And they had this uh, press conference stunt yeah. where nine robots appeared beside their sitting beside their creator, right? So I read some more stories about... Um, uh, you know, from the from the press conference, basically saying that the robots had uh, reassured humans that they weren't going to take all our jobs or rebel against us. Yes, right? yes. Good so news. I thought, so I thought, well, there's probably more stories <laughs> in this press conference than that. So yeah. I thought I'd watch it all. And uh, one thing that struck me immediately about it was that the robots are all women mm. <laughs> with yes. breasts. Yes. And noses, right? So there's no air passing through the noses. Yes. <laughs> there's no, there's no milk coming out of the breasts. Um, and yet they still chose to design them in in, in their sort well, that's of right. ideal and, view and of the, a woman. And virtually all of the creators, the engineers, are men. Yes. So they're making gorgeous-looking female robots. Um. Look up, you know. The patriarchy is alive. Alan. I think it's a bit creepy. <laughs> yeah. That, to be honest. Yeah. And then, and then listening to the press conference and listening to the, so anyway, I've been thinking about why are they making them look like women, like like humans, right? The answer is because they reckon that that's how they're going to make money because it's this is a business, right? AI, mm-hmm. AI is interesting and everyone's talking about it, but it's actually just a business, right? Yes. And the companies developing AI are doing it in order to sell the product and to make money. Yep. And you know, it looks like they're going to make. Um, truckloads of money yeah uh, now they've put AI into robots up to now they've been robots around for ages right yes doing yes. various tasks and manual tra- type processes mainly that's right but yeah. now AI's gone into these robots which was the point of the press conference mm. because the journalists were asking the robots questions yes and the robots were answering and quite often the creators sitting beside them were surprised at the answers yeah so they were not Parroting what the re- creator, the male, the human creator, had told them to say, they yes. actually were coming up with their own responses. Yes, um, and that was because of AI. So, and if you've used AI, um, you know, you type in a question on the on the screen, and it gives you an answer, and you can chat with it, right? Yeah. So this was this a human chat form GPT of that. Yeah. or Google Bard or you know, well, any one of those AI things. And um, now they're just putting that into the, the the brain, as it were, of a robot, and the, the robot listens to the question and responds in real time. Responds, and and when they speak, their lips move. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so why is so the question is why is why are they doing that? And the answer is, I think, because they propose to sell them to companies to replace human beings. Yes. In jobs that would be better. Uh, where the companies would be more likely to buy them if the robots looked like humans. So a couple of the robots at the press conference have been working for a while now. Uh, One of them's been working in aged care. Right. Helping elderly residents do stuff, right? And clearly the elderly residents are going to be more comfortable with a helper that looks human. Yes. Than something that's just, you know, uh, one of those robots that, doesn't look human. So, yes, you know. So that's I think what it's going. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, and I reckon. What else could they? What else would they be selling the robots or thinking thinking that they're going to sell the robots for? Uh, I reckon uh, customer uh, service type roles. Yeah, a waiter in a restaurant. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, take, I mean, take this take this plate to table four. 
Um, well, you know. uh, we, we were in Japan recently and we actually went to a few restaurants and these were not special robot restaurants. These were run-of-the-mill restaurants where a robot delivered your food to you. What, walking to you? Rolling. Oh, Rolled wow. across the floor and here's your meal. Right. Yeah, and, and you know that the number of staff in the restaurant was noticeably lower yeah. because they had these robots doing that work. I mean, yeah, perfect example. So that's what, what I think they're proposing. And looking at that press conference, um, I, I could see a world in which humans and robots coexist. Yeah, um, and can't really be told apart. Oof. So I reckon um, I think that the governments need to decree that robots need to look different. Mm. to humans. Mm. Otherwise, you know, I think it's going to not end well. What, what's your suggestion for how you make them look different? No different faces? Co- or no, different colour. You know, they've got to be green, green or blue yep. or red. I don't know. I mean, just they've got them all looking with flesh colour. Right. Um, you know, on the necks there's even sinews. Right. That, so the necks look real. Yep. I mean, they're going to a lot of trouble to make these robots look as human as possible. In fact, listening to the creators talk, they they are clearly in a race uh, to around the world. There's, they're all located in different places: Hong Kong, Singapore, U- US, and so on, yeah. and Japan. And they're clearly in a race to come up with the most human-looking robots. Um, and you know, like they are. I mean, I know this will sound more negative than I mean it to, but they're out of control in the sense that nobody's controlling no, no what they're rush. doing. Yep. Nobody's sort of saying, wait a minute, yep. is this what we want, really? Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's the point with all of AI at the moment. The control of the whole uh, development is in a relatively small group of hands. Re- you know, there's, there's a relatively small number of companies driving this and researchers driving this. And as you say, there are no guardrails, none. None whatsoever. Well, the only thing that's motivating them is money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, and, and I, I guess academic success, you know. Yeah, I guess so. There is that. How far but, can um, you push the technology? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I probably sound more cynical than I am about it, but I think a lot of ma- academics are motiv- motivated entirely by money as well. Maybe. Um, yeah. So. But, yeah, it, it's we are at a fascinating point, and – we're going to be playing catch-up on this now. The, the horse is well and truly bolted. Yeah, uh, this morning, a, KPMG and Microsoft are rolling out this big AI program. It's going to go through audit and tax. So the ATO needs to be thinking about how it's going to treat AI-conducted uh, AI tax work. How will, it, how will it think about that? Who, where will the responsibility lie? Will the ATO use AI to look at tax work? Who goes to jail? Yeah. <laughs> the humanoid robot or, you know. Uh, but how s- the, the, the regulators move so slowly on this stuff at the best of times that I just reckon the horse is bolted. We're, we're going to be playing catch-up on this stuff forever. Yeah, but they, not, that's right. They're not going to catch up. No, they're not going to catch up. <laughs> they're not going to no. catch up. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, yeah, you can get – you can dive into this – Anyway, AI I've got stuff. A, I've, I've got a column on this subject going in the New Daily tomorrow morning, yeah. which I filed before coming here this morning. And uh, so. did, just finally on AI, I did read something from a Goldman Sachs analyst just on the making money bit, and his point was: if this technology becomes so ubiquitous, does it become commoditized and therefore not really valuable, and nobody really makes massive money out of it? It's an interesting point because you know. 
stocks have been driven by AI madness, you can guarantee every earnings season call in the next month in America and Australia will feature AI. Yeah, I, I just wonder. No, no, but if you're in the business of selling something that everyone has, yes, you're going to make money for a while. Yeah, for a while. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but it'll even itself out. Maybe. I don't know. Well, eventually, you know. But It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, questions? Yeah. Shap, Shapan says, this is regarding Sovereign Cloud Holdings, SOV. Next DC have acquired a 33% stake in them after a capital raise. Prior to this raise, NXT held 90%. Are they now legally required to take them over due to the 20% rule? Uh, no. Why not? Because I think they've all they've done is participated in the capital raise, and so I don't think that I don't think that means they have to launch a full takeover. Well, that's an absolute outrage. Well, so, so no, I, I, control I mean, changes hands without a full takeover. That's oh, what's no, not control. Thirty-three percent. Thirty-three percent. Okay. Yeah. Well, then another capital uh, raise. I, next. I, my, my, there's definitely no um, takeover on the table. So my sense is that my my. My view is that they don't have to do that. Well, Mr Murdoch controls News Limited with much less than 33%. (laughs) Yes. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Jonathan says, I'm 49 and on a high income. Have my mortgage under control. Contribute the maximum amount of concessional super contributions, 27,500. I have spare cash and have been investing in the Vanguard Managed Fund Australian Shares ETF. Just wondering whether it would be better to focus my investment and direct my spare cash into super as a non-concessional contribution. My host plus super has better returns than Vanguard, and I guess it would be taxed at 15% rather than my marginal rate of 45%. Well, of course, Jonathan, absolutely, you know, yes. This is not personal advice, right? We we absolutely do not know your circumstances, but uh, as, as general advice... Put as much as you can into super. But is, it, these are non-concessional contributions, so he will be taxed on that. Yeah, but you know, the ta- it, once, once they're in there, they're taxed at fifteen percent. Yeah, okay. No, so what he gets out is taxed at, at lower rates, uh, and it's it's added to by the fact that Host Plus is making better returns than Vanguard. Yeah, come on. Yeah. I mean, you can have your super in Vanguard if you want to. Yes. Um, by having a uh, ah, we're joined by somebody. <laughs> Um, so you can have your uh, you can have your super in Vanguard by having a, su- a self managed fund. Yeah. And in fact, I think su- Vanguard's got its own super fund, right? So um, I think they have. I can't. But anyway, uh, yes, they do now. They you certainly do. don't yes. have to choose between Host Plus and Vanguard to have your money in super if you want. I mean, you can keep it in Vanguard if you want to, but it sounds like you shouldn't do that either. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yep. All right. Zach says, why don't beachside local councils put a surcharge on top of property rates for holiday houses? It seems like a no-brainer. An extra source of tax revenue with no political risk. Locals would love it, and the people who are getting taxed don't live there. <laughs> local councils constrained legislatively in how they can tax these sort of things. Well, there's a bit of a uh, principles act which says no taxation without representation. And uh, <laughs> I guess... Uh, why would locals love it? Because... They the, get the extra money. Because the money, extra money is going into the council that they're not paying and it's paid by people who don't vote for the council. Yes. I presume that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the, the people with holiday houses. Now, as someone with a holiday house, <laughs> I, I'm absolutely dead against this. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the other thing is that those beachside councils and the locals, dare I say, who live and work in those regions – 
probably benefit a fair bit from t- uh, tourism and holidaying. I'm not sure you'd want to discourage it, would you? Uh no, that's right. That so the, the question is, how much extra tax could you put on without actually driving, <laughs> driving the holiday house yeah. owners away? Um, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. But I, no, I, I'm dead against it. Zach, you're an idiot. <laughs> talking through his pocket. Shut, shut up. <laughs> He's talking through his pocket. Uh, Ian, the last question in last week's episode regarding independence never being 100% while payments are being made uh, by the employing company led me to ask the same regarding the federal government. Would we like to be governed 100% in the best interest of the majority of the population? But how can this be when large corporates make big donations to the main political parties? And uh, Zach provides some examples about oil donations and uh, fuel standard donations. Yes. Well, look, I think this is more true in America where they have much larger donations than Australia. But yeah, the donations here are material. Then you know they actually make a difference. I think to the political parties. So. Yes, um, and they do tend to the donors do tend to get access. Yeah, they, they get to go to fundraising events where they pay I don't know ten thousand bucks to show up for dinner. Yes, um, and get get into some minister's ear. Yes, so, al- al- although the um, the uh, corporate donors. To the other causes, like the voice, I mean, that that's been largely lauded. So, you know, it sort of cuts both ways, doesn't it? As yeah, long yeah. as everyone's transparent about this, uh, I think that's the that's the main thing. What we don't what we don't want is a situation where um, you you can't see who's making the donations. I guess. Um. Megan says, long-time listener, first-time caller. I've got a mortgage coming off a fixed rate of 2.09%. Uh, sorry to hear that, Megan. <laughs> I was surprised that the bank is offering a one-year fixed rate at a 0.25% discount to the variable rate with potentially some further rate hikes ahead or a period with rates on hold. I'm thinking of fixing for a year. What are your thoughts? Of course, not personal advice. Absolutely not personal advice, Megan. Uh Tough one, isn't it? Interesting idea, though. What? Do you kick the can down the road for a year? I might mean... As, I suppose might as well. I mean, Yeah, you're saving the discount of 0.25%. I mean, I mean it's a one pretty year, marginal, isn't a it? A one-year term for a fixed rate is not much of a... You know, it's not like it's it's, it's close to being variable rate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the bank is... You know, you might as well take their discount, I guess. I guess so. Yeah, is there any transactional I mean, friction costs? That it's very unlikely that the rates, the variable rate's going to come down in the next twelve months. So Ooh, you won't. That's a Phil Low statement. Yes, probably. It's unlikely. I'm mean, saying it's unlikely. Yeah. The the only reason it would come down is if there's a shocking recession. Yeah. You know, like if unemployment suddenly suddenly surges to six or seven percent. Yeah. Um, I you know I don't think that's going to happen. Yes. Someone I worked with a long time ago said. Uh, fixing your rate should only be done in very, very exceptional circumstances because do you think you know more than the economy? And I sort of – it's always stuck with me. You yeah, know, so I, everyone I, I, got a, Everyone got a good pandemic window and lots of people took advantage of it. Good on them. But, I agree with that. Um, but if, are you sure you want to try and beat the game? I don't know. Just No, but the, but the other reason for fixing your rate is not so much to bet against the market but to just – get some certainty in your life. Yeah, true. Which, you know, fair enough. <coughs> yeah. David David says, this is a long question, I don't know if I can read it all. Um, 
Oh, it's your turn. Yes, David says, I'm going to paraphrase this, but uh, Alan regularly espoused the perceived benefits of MMT uh, and the... To paraphrase, the attractive logic was that sovereign nations with control of their own currency were essentially free to print money, with the only caveat uh, being that they could only print money to a level that didn't cause inflation uh, to break out. Now we've got inflation, no one's talking about MMT anymore, um, and certainly no one's talking about the the MMT prescription for inflation, which is to raise taxes. So MMT stands for Modern Monetary Theory? Yes. Yes. it's widely misunderstood to be a prescription rather than a description. Yes, okay. It is not a prescription. Right. That that's what should happen. It's simply a description of what actually happens. Countries yeah. with control of their currency do print money. Yep. Right? That's what happens. If Whenever a government pays its bills, it, it sends the bill to the Reserve Bank to pay it. Yes. And the Reserve Bank then pays it yes. uh, by printing money. And later on, the government goes and raises some money and puts it into the Reserve Bank. Yep. So, um, and so the, what MMT proposes is that the only con- actual control on government spending is inflation. Not that governments can print money and spend up to where it causes inflation, but that inflation is the only control, uh, is the only limitation yes. on it, right? Yes. So it's, as I say, it's a description of the real world rather than a prescription of what should happen. Right. So a lot of people have misunderstood MMT to be that, that, that basically MMT is some sort of, you know, call for governments to freely print money, which it isn't. Right. right. Okay. And uh, I, I would just observe that during COVID, um, money was printed. Yes. In order to mm. prevent a catastrophe. Yes. And, you know... And, and so, uh, I mean, um, it is the case. I think where MMT comes a bit unstuck is that they conflate the printing of money and deficits, right? Yeah. And in the real world, the fact is that uh, deficits and uh, money printing is done by separate bodies that are independent of each yeah, other, yeah. right? So the, yep. so the deficit is the government uh, printing money. The money is printed by the Reserve Bank. Yes. And in most countries... Not all, but most countries, the Reserve Bank is entirely independent. Uh, independent. Yeah. In China, it's not. Um, in Zimbabwe, which got into trouble with money printing, it wasn't. Yep. Mugabe told the Reserve, you know, the central bank to print the money, uh, and they had to. Um, but here, uh, during the COVID, the, the government ran up a massive deficit, hmm. and separately, the Reserve Bank printed money. But the printed money wasn't used to finance the deficit. Yes, I see what you're saying. Yep. So, uh, and that's what happens in the real world, right? Yep. And is always going to happen. You know, whenever there's a disaster, financial disaster, the central bank's going to print money again, and the reserve, then the the government's going to run a deficit. Mm. So, the, and the question of whether the deficit matters comes is all about um, the interest that has to be paid on the debt which becomes, as is going on in Australia, it becomes a big uh, cost yes. to the government. But to David's point, is MMT, as he says, like socialism, can be, it's a good theory, uh, but when managed by politicians and bureaucrats, it's always likely to be flawed? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what, what, if, if David is saying we shouldn't give the politicians the power to print money, mm. totally agree. Yes. 
you know. I, but um, therefore, it, it's hard for the the sort of full suite of MMT to work, though, isn't it? When those because you need those two things working in concert. Well, yeah. Look, I mean, there there is there is a body of opinion that says that over time, uh, monetary and fiscal policy will start to merge. Yes. Um, and it's actually proposed. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, monetary and fiscal policy did merge during COVID. Yep. They worked together. Yep. That is true." But as I say, the the money that was printed by the Reserve Bank uh, wasn't used to finance the deficit. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll be a long time, possibly never, before that actually happens. Mm. It's in my opinion. I mean, um, I, yeah, I don't think it will happen. Uh, I don't think anyone wants it to happen. I don't think we want uh, politicians to have the power to print money. I think. That'd be crazy. Yeah. I'm going to ask the next one too, Alan. Uh, it looks like the Cola Jinx is still active. Love the interview Alan did with Kim Truter from Burgundy Diamond Mines. Sounded like a compelling story. Sounds even more compelling after listing at a 23% discount. Is there something more to the story or is it bad luck on listing on the one of yeah, the worst so, days on recent markets? So I interviewed this bloke uh, last week, Kim Truter from Burgundy Diamond Mines. Kim was... Uh, the head of diamonds at Rio Tinto, he ran Argyle, and he then moved across to De Beers and ran their Canadian operations, and now he's the CEO of the ASX-listed Burgundy Diamond Mines, yep. which last week bought the Ikati Diamond Mine in Canada, right? which is a 50-year-old diamond mine, um, uh, which uh, he says throws off 200 million US cash a year. Right. Right, and it, and it makes yellow diamonds, or fine, it digs up yellow diamonds in, in very, right up in the Arctic Circle of Canada. Um, and uh, so they bought this for 136 million US, so not far above half uh, annual cash flow. Yeah, yeah. So I'm th- I, <laughs> you're a bit perplexed at the share, share I, price I think, reaction too. I think that's a pretty good price. Mm. You know, I mean. And when it came on at a twenty-three, it, it sank like a stone when it came on. Right. So I don't, know, I don't fully understand it. I haven't had a chance really to go back and either ring Kim Trudeau and say what's going on, yep. or do the sums on it and to see what's going on because uh, clearly there's something else. Yeah. There's something else that I don't know about going on at that company <laughs> that caused <laughs> caused the shares to fall. Do your own research, uh, Zach. Yeah. Uh, We've got time for one more question. Which one should it be? Peter's question. Peter. Sorry you missed out on Taylor Swift tickets. It's a bit, still a bit raw for me, but I did learn a lot about how the system and promoters work. Won't be surprised not to hear this discussed, but maybe something's still topical. Uh, question. How are the artists, promoters, ticket officers that different, that different from scalpers when they bundle a general ticket with fifteen percent, $15 of merchandise and charge an extra $200 for a VIP package? Background, same seating area, one uh, $160 and the other $360, but no transparency about how many tickets were allocated to VIP. Unsurprisingly, people don't buy VIP packages until after the general tickets sell out and people are desperate not to miss out on the concert. For Taylor, the VIP pack was a VIP lanyard, uh, uh, four postcards, a pin and a stick. <laughs> well, they cost 200 bucks. Yeah. Oh. It, uh, P- Peter is uh, the, uh, Peter. Uh, is still very raw in the Thompson household too. Uh, very <laughs> raw. Um, and he's absolutely right here. This is a classic. This is a classic that um, 
promoters, artists, ticket offices, sporting clubs. We, we see it every year with the grand final. A ticket to the grand final is X dollars. You add a crappy breakfast in it and suddenly it's $5,000 more. Whoa! It is, it is just a classic. This is the way that they get around changing the face value, charging above face value for the ticket. You add something and you... You know, that addition has a um, unspecified, unknowable value. There just needs – this is a market right for disruption and better transparency, surely. We all should have known how many tickets were on sale, what's their exact worth, how do you strip out all these optional extras. You know, we're, we're, we're being – so what we're being rorted. So what happened in the, in the Thompson household? Did the uh, oh. what did the Thompson household pay for no, but, Taylor Swift? We, we couldn't. We didn't get close. You we know? didn't get close. No, oh. bloody twelve hours of our lives gone. You should have been a hero, Dad. You should have taken a couple of days off and uh, sat on the sat on the website. Well, I was a hero husband. I needed to be, but I did. I did basically sit on the website for. Two freaking days and got Did nothing. You? So <laughs> perhaps Peter and I will go and, and stand outside the concert and uh, <laughs> with a placard, <laughs> with a march up and down. <laughs> say no VIPs here. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone, to to Money Cafe. Next week there will be a week off, but we'll be back in a fortnight with a special episode of the Money Cafe to celebrate a special milestone. Am I allowed to say what the milestone is? No, just keep it a surprise. Okay, right. Uh, it'll be both James Thompson and Stephen Main in the Money Cafe. Whoa. The three of us together. No robots? Uh, uh, well. <laughs> you won't be able to tell. <laughs> won't be able to tell. That's right. <laughs> if you've got a question for the three of us, please send it to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report and all the rest. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you in a fortnight.